T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. Last year, you may have heard that the Canadian government spent $1.1 billion buying uh, uh, used F-18 F airplanes from uh, uh, Australia. Yeah. Junkers. Yeah. And... Uh, According to a base commander, they arrived by boat, minus their engines. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, nobody's talking about it. Huh. Something the government's keeping very, very secret. They tried to send them back, apparently, and they couldn't do it. Wow. But uh, they weren't much good to start with, but without any engines, they're useless. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> So anyway, that's something you guys might want to look into because it could be a really yeah. good news story. Yeah, well, these guys will check it out. Yeah. But no, you have to get on your computer and start punching a few buttons and asking a few questions. You'll probably find out pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, we'll check it out. But anyway, getting back to the UFOs, the UFO flap and Carmen started right out there on that road. And my wife and I were coming back uh, to the hangar about 7.30, middle of February, cold, cold, cold. So cold that trucks sounded like they're in our backyard. The air was so dense. Wow. And uh, Elaine says, "Look at that!" And there was a red light, bright red light coming down along the highway. That's before all those buildings and everything yeah, were yeah. there. And we just stopped on the road. And I said, "Well, that's got to be a helicopter from the base in Portage." But there was no sound, no noise. What the heck? You could hear a helicopter five miles away at that yeah. dense air. Yeah. And we just stood there on the road, and it came right up. It went right by us. It was below the level of the trees. It wasn't going fast, maybe 60 miles an hour at the most. Yeah. And they got right in front of us. It hopped over the trees, went around Carmen, and gone. Is that and the classic Charlie, the red one? Like the... Well, I'll just get okay. into that. Yeah. Uh, Elaine says to me, that was a flying saucer. And I'm standing there in stunned silence. And I said, no. I said, it can't be. They don't exist. <laughs> but it was me. And, but it didn't look like any of the other ones that we saw later. It was the only one that looked like that. It was maybe 40 feet across, if that, and it looked like a donut with big outside. And, and it had a raised section on the inside and, and a smaller raised section on the bottom that was brushed aluminum or steel or something because the outside was red hot, yeah. the donut part. And it was so hot, it was reflecting light off the center of it, like that. And, uh, and uh, you could tell it was burnished something. Yeah. And and uh, none of the others looked like that. The others were all pure saucers that I saw. And uh, so then we started looking. And my father-in-law lived up on the hills there, my wife's father. That was up in Roland area there? No, Miami. Miami, sorry, yeah. Yeah, and he lives on what they call the second beach. Yeah. Lake Agassiz, where we're sitting at the bottom of right now. Yeah. And from his front yard with binoculars, I could see across the valley for 40 miles. Yeah. So we're up there, and we weren't there very long, and here comes Charlie from the States. He went right up to Carmen, turned around, and went, found a place in the field somewhere, and sat down. And then we're standing with our mouths open, and then here comes a couple more. <laughs> did the same thing. Well, then I realized what they were doing is we had that big 50,000 watt tower here, CBC tower. They were DFing on the tower, just like we do. Okay. And, and um, so then I knew something was on. So I blew the whistle and, and uh, 
people started looking and, and uh, in, a, in, a, in a few short days there were so many people out here at the airport that you could walk from here down to the corner and all the way to the nuisance ground on cars without ever stepping on the road. <laughs> That's how many were here. Yeah. And they very seldom went home empty-handed. Um, Charlie, well, you know it. You wrote it up in your book. Charlie would show up about midnight or a little afterwards. And, and uh, uh, what they were doing, we figured out later, was the Americans, Air Force was chasing them around because I met a few of the pilots and got talking to them. They actually had orders to ram. Yeah, you told you met the guy at the border, correct? Yep. In the bar. And and so what they what was going on was that they were chasing them around. So in order to get any sleep, they'd come up here and bark because we didn't have an air force to chase them around. <laughs> and that's what was going on. And and in the book, you asked me how many I saw, and I said I saw about 150 of them. Actually, that was a bit of a fib. I saw many, many, many more than that. Wow. But I didn't want to say that say yeah. so at the time because nobody would believe it. You were sort of the center of attention. The people, like the media, was. Well, I was the guy that set CKY up with that when we hit the jackpot that film, night. Yeah. They came out to the airport here and said, "Where do we set up our cameras?" And I took them out and set them up. And we were in exactly the right place. And and uh, uh, but you know, it's like Paul Hellyer said. Uh, uh, he, he said that when those uh, saucers crashed at Roswell, he said the first report was right. The next report that it was a weather balloon was a lie. And he said, I call that the foundational lie because they said they haven't told the truth of anything of consequence since. So there you go. By the way, did you know that those saucers didn't crash? They were shot down? Yeah, I've heard that story, yeah. Yeah. The uh, Germans during the war were developing a, a, a ray that was to, uh, uh, to uh, knock out the magnetos on the B-17s. Unfortunately for us, they didn't get it finished in time. And with Operation Paperclip, they brought all those scientists over here after the war, what they could grab. The Russians got a bunch too. And they perfected that here at White Sands. And then they took it to the atomic bomb group to protect the, the biggest asset they had, right? And the three uh, flying saucers showed up one night flying Echelon right. And unknown to us, they had uh, uh, fly-by-wire controls. We didn't know what fly-by-wire controls were at that time. And when they shot the beam at them, they upset the fly-by-wire controls, and the two top saucers went together and crashed. The bottom saucer went wobbling all over the place out of control, and the three guys in it took to the lifeboat and ejected. But the, apparently the controls on it were, were damaged too. They only made it 30 miles before they crashed, and two of them died on the spot, but one guy survived, and uh, that's when the Americans got their first alien. And he was called Eby. That stood for extraterrestrial biological entity. EB like strawberry ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> so, you had one here right at the airport, didn't you? With uh, that had been drawn up. I think I put the sketch in my book where it was upside down. Where I can't remember who it was that saw it, but you had one right above. We had uh, we had so many flying saucers going by the airport. You know, we called it the beer run. You put it in your book. <laughs> and 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 uh, in broad daylight, like we were. There was a guy that had his airplane here. I just finished servicing. We rolled it outside, and he and I and my wife were standing yeah. at the door talking. That's the one, yeah. And, and Elaine says, look at that. And here comes the saucer in bright daylight, right down the road. She, she made a dive for the phone, and I thought, she's going to call the cops? Ha, lucky. You never get a cop when you want one. <laughs> and the dog on if she didn't get a cop in his cruiser at our end of town. And he came roaring out here, and... and, and uh, his name was Weatherspoon, oh, and yeah. he got out here just in time on the road out here to have seven of them go by him, like within baseball throwing range. <laughs> and outside of getting out of bed that morning, he only made one mistake. He went back and reported what he saw. And then he took his cruiser and he was chasing them all over the lake and all over the place and reporting what he was seeing. And, and uh, within six weeks, they had him out of here into an Indian reserve up north, as close to the North Pole as they could find. I remember that, yeah. And, and, and uh, uh, what really bothers me, as you wrote it up in your book too, is those, those people out there, like, they lost 32 horses. The Lehmans. Lehmans, yeah. What, what on earth would the aliens want with 32 horses? But the thing about it is, I saw the ship, I think, leave with those horses. Oh. It looked exactly like a Ferris wheel, a big Ferris wheel 
flying on its side, yeah. but it's it was climbing out very shallowly and very slowly, yeah. and I was wondering at the time, why is he going so slow? Yeah. Well, if you had 32 horses on board and didn't want to stampede, I guess that would explain it, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was sort of the center of the Lehman. That's about eight miles north of town there where they had, and they did describe the Ferris wheel and the power. Did you ever hear anything like that? They described the power? Oh yeah, they, that, happens, the that happens all the time around the country. They have to recharge their batteries. Now the thing about it is there's a place, uh, a Mayan city called Tiahuacan. It's uh, south, uh, about 60 miles south of Mexico City. And it's got a boulevard down the center of it with pyramids on both sides. Yeah. And at the head of that is what they call the Pyramid of the Sun. It's as big as the Pyramid in Giza, which by the way I've been on. I've climbed it, been to the top of the Pyramid in Giza. And, and uh, they found under it uh, tunnels and storage areas, one of which was full of several tons of mercury. Now what the heck were the ancients doing with mercury? First of all, mercury doesn't occur naturally. Yeah. It has to be refined. And, and uh, people with bows and arrows and, and, and uh, uh, copper chisels didn't have the means to refine mercury. Mm -hmm. Now, why the mercury was there? I think I know. Uh, we've, we, have, uh, we had Sam from, from uh, town over up west here, um, was here with his airplane. And I said to him, I said, you might as well come out with us and we're going to have to watch the flying saucers tonight. Oh, he said, I don't believe in those damn things. Well, I said, uh, you don't mind, you like to fly at night anyway. I said, why don't you come out with us? So I talked him into it. So we're up in the hills there. Sure enough, here comes Charlie. You can almost set your watch by him about 10 o'clock. So we go tearing across country. Well, Charlie didn't go all the way to Carmen this time. He went up Parkway and then he turned back down the highway. But Charlie was playing a trick on us. He had, uh, he had uh, lights like an airplane. The only problem was Charlie never read the manual. He had the lights in the wrong place. <laughs> and, and I pointed that out to Sam. He said, oh no, he said, some engineer just made a mistake. I said, no engineer would make that mistake. <laughs> And so we got on the highway just behind the saucer. And it wasn't very high, maybe 500 feet of that. And we were doing 70 miles an hour, we were able to keep up with it. And he's in the back seat and, and he's thinking, these guys are nuts. That's an airplane that's gonna turn and land at the airport in Morden. And just as he said that to himself, the thing turned to his normal heartbeat, flashing red. Then he didn't know what to think. And we had the photographer with us, the Dutch lady from the end of the street down here. And she had a telephoto that had long. And we chased it to the corner of the lights, and then we went a mile uh, further south, and, and it was heading into to the States. Well, we were done. We couldn't do anything more to chase it. So um, we were just packing up the camera. She had the camera in the middle of the road, and, and uh, uh, Elaine says, hey, it's coming back. Hmm. Sure enough, it was. I put the binoculars on it, and it's coming back at quite a rate. And I couldn't see the saucer itself, but I could see the outline of the stars it was blocking out. And it had two extremely white lights now on it, on each outside, like welding lights. They were so bright. And I handed the camera, or my binoculars to Sam. I said, Sam, what do you make out of this? And just as I handed them, he says, hey, he says, it's changed uh, attitude. He says, it's flying at an angle now. And he said, it's got a halo around it. Well, we've seen that a thousand times. Uh, St. Elmo's, it looks like St. Elmo's fire, because when they fire up the ship, and, and, and uh, uh, electrify it, uh, it ionizes the air around it, yeah. so you can see it. It's exactly like St. Elmo's fire. And, and he handed me back the binoculars, and just then, the one light snapped out, and the other one sucked right down, just like you would shortly, yeah. the wiring out in your hangar. And everyone said, hey, it's disappeared. Well, it did to them, but I had it still in the binoculars. And I didn't realize it at the moment, but it was accelerating away from me, at a tremendous rate of speed going south. But they had set up an angle of bank, so this thing was obviously manned. They had set it up for a comfortable angle of G. Instead of getting the G sideways, they were getting it down in the seat. And it pulled up into a big sweeping turn, it must have been 50 miles to the east. Mm -hmm. And all I had time to say was, it's past that star, that star, that star. And it was in orbit. But, but as it was going out, it was getting brighter because it was using less power and the people could see it again. So. I don't know what it had to do with religion, but Sam, who was not at all a religious, religious man, had a, a come to Jesus that night. <laughs> I, I don't understand why, but he did. 
Anyway, about two weeks later, he was a car dealer, and he and his wife were going into Winnipeg early in the morning to pick up a new car. And as they got to the tower uh, out there by Stonewall, they saw the same thing again at bright daylight. Yeah, they, uh, getting back to that, that uh, what I was going to tell you about that uh, mercury they found in Teotihuacan. Uh, the reason the saucers are around, from watching that one that night in particular, I gathered that they're using mercury in the ship on the outside severity. And, and the reason they're using mercury is because it's uh, electrical qualities. And you can use uh, magnetic forces to accelerate it. And what they do is they accelerate the mercury to high speed to make their own gravity. To exert, I guess, the force of gravity from the planet. That's how they fly. And I can even tell you which way the mercury is rotating because uh, when the ship went away from us, it was uh, pushing uh, an electromagnetic force out the side. At least I think it was electromagnetic. And uh, it was pulling the, the uh, plasma off the side of the ship. So the propulsion now was not out the back, it was on the side. Now when the helicopter, when you push the cyclic ahead, the blade flaps out here, not in front of you. It, it's called 90 degrees to phase rotation. They were doing the same thing. The mercury was going around this way anti-clockwise, and they were pushing on it sideways to make it go forward. And that's what that mercury is doing under that, uh, that uh, pyramid of the sun. Can you talk about, uh, you had you had CBC was coming out here, CKY, all the crews were coming. Well, you, I'll tell you about the, 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 the tell us ABC one. Yeah, the, the, uh, tell us about the, your involvement in the big one where they caught it on the ground. The CKY oh. film. The, uh, yeah, okay. Um, uh, we had 14 of us, because the crew from the newspaper were there, four of them. And Howard Bennett as much. A lot of you guys are pilots, right? Bennett was a pilot, you were a pilot. But anyway, the, we were still using film in those days, and the cameraman had his camera in the middle of the road, and, and he was shooting down the road, and I'm thinking to myself, boy, these guys have got lots of money to be able to shoot a film like that for nothing, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, he said, did you see that? Well, there were 13 of us standing around the camera, and nobody saw anything. But when they developed the film, a little white dot took off from the bottom of the frame to the top of the frame. That's what, 1 24th of a second? Yeah, yeah. And it lit up the whole area. You could see all the trees and the hydropoles and the houses and everything, but just one frame. Yeah, one frame, yeah. And it was so fast that we didn't see it. And then there was this half moon thing that come, come up over the trees about, oh, two miles west of us. And it'd go back down, and it would come back up, and it was bright orange. And so Bennett said, well, let's go look at that. So he took his crew, and he went a mile nor uh, north and then started going west. I took the producer and his wife in the back of my wagon and we went the other way down. And But we hit, it was springtime, it was May, and the roads were wet and we couldn't make any time. And they got there first and they timed it just right. They came around the corner of the bluff and went back and there was this flying saucer standing in the field. And it was big, it was, so uh, I would say, close to a hundred feet. Wow. And, and uh, bright orange in color. But the strange thing about it was, it wasn't sitting like you think a flying saucer would be sitting. It was standing on its edge, yeah. with about the height of a man underneath it. And that was rising up and down, that's why we would see it go up and down. And it took one look at them in their car, of course, and it took off. And it jumped up, we were about a mile away from it. it I'll never forget, it jumped up about 500 feet, stopped, hopped over, stopped again, and then it took off for Winnipeg, right past the cameraman. And, and uh, he had the sense to stop the camera and let it fly through. The, we had it triangulated so we knew how far away it was and they estimated the speed at that point already which was only like two and a half three miles at, at uh, 33,000 miles an hour mm -hmm. that's how fast it accelerated yeah. and on the film uh, like when they when they're flying slow they bleep like a heartbeat yeah. and every time they bleep that's that's power that's, that's their lift 
when they go fast, it looks like they're a white light just going. But it's like a, uh, our electricity is 60 cycles a second. It looks like it's a solid light. That's what they're doing too. They just bleep faster. And, and when you put it on a film, of course, you can slow it down and you can see the bleeps. And the other thing also is it doesn't fly in a straight line. It flies in a curved line, yeah. in a parabola. And, and it, uh, it, uh, each one of these, each lift, each blip is a, a lift, and that's why it does that. That's, um, but just the, the CBC guys came out here one night, and we were already gone. We were out in the hills, and they scared up my father, and, and but he gave them directions how to get out of the farm, which must have been pretty good because it's winding, twisty. So they showed up in the yard, and there was five of them in a station wagon, and Eddie was the cameraman, and they came up to the yard, and, yeah, you're watching for UFOs, eh? Yeah, pull up a blade of grass and sit down. <laughs> so... We, they weren't there 15 minutes, and we were waiting for Charlie to come out of the States, but there was a fog bank hanging over Miami town that night, and the saucer appeared out of that fog bank and was coming up the side of the escarpment right at us, and it was bleeping, and uh, it was a big one. It was 80 to 100 feet easily, and when it bleeped, you could see the superstructure inside the ship. Just like you look at a frosty hood in the morning in the fall, you'll see the oh, yeah, yeah. superstructure shining through the, through the frost on your hood. And it got within a mile of us. Now, there were nine of us sitting there watching it. It got within a mile of us exactly because the neighbor's house was exactly one mile away. And it read us. And it turned and went up over the hill. So we jumped in our cars and we took off and we went up over the hill. And it wasn't going very fast. It was just maybe no more than 40 miles an hour just lazing along. And I stopped and I ran back to the guys behind me and I said, and it's just uh, running back, here comes another saucer right through the yard we just left. Now there's two of them. Yeah. And I said to them, I said, you guys take that one. And I said, I'll take this one. And I ran back to my car and I started off after it. And I looked back and they're following me. <laughs> and that's when I realized that they had orders to film the stupid buggers who were watching the flying saucers, not the flying saucers yeah. themselves. And they turn on the lights, right, to every block, every night mission by trying to film the people. Well, no, it, it wasn't dark yet, that dark, uh, that dark that light. I don't think we even had the lights on yet. And, and uh, uh, it was just twilight. So, anyway, about four or five days later, I got a letter in the mail from Eddie, the photographer. And he said, Bob, he said, I don't know what the hell that was I saw the other night. But he said, that's the best night I've ever had without the use of marijuana. <laughs> now, that's, that's 40 years ago, so, you know. <laughs> And you didn't see anything for many years, right? Oh, after uh, after '76, they were they were gone. There's a story about that too. We know now, for instance, that the aliens went to Ukraine and they shut down they shut down one of the one of the uh, uh, nothing shut it down. They took over one of the missiles and they ran it up to launch and scared the Jesus yeah. out of the Russians. They tried to stop it, good, and then just shut it off. And then they came to Maelstrom Air Force Base here, south of us, and, and uh, they took over 10 missiles and shut them down. Yeah. And I've got it on tape with the, the guy that was actually on duty that night. And he said that the, the, the 10 lights went bing, 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 and they, they were all off. And what they did is they rearranged the programming on the guidance systems on the missiles. And they don't know to this day how they did it, because that's all hardened against EMP, right? Yeah electromagnetic pulse. So then what happened was that the Russians and the Americans, who couldn't agree at 1975 what time of day it was, yeah. got together and signed the SALT II agreements. Well, how did that ever happen? Well, very simple. They decided that we don't have control of our missiles anymore. And whoever does have control of the missiles decides that they like somebody better than us, somebody's going to get hurt, yeah. big time. So they got together and, and, and disposed of their missiles. Now, I was in the hangar watching TV when they pulled the last missile out of the silo directly south of us here. Yeah. And that night, my wife and I went out to the hills as usual to watch for Charlie. No more Charlie. Yeah. That was the end. Charlie was gone. Now, no, they, they clapped their hands together and said, well, we stopped the war. Time to go home now. Yeah. And, and for a long time, I figured, why? What happened there? And then I've come to the realization that in the first book of the Bible, it says that the watchers came down and landed on Mount Haran to look after the Jewish population. 80 
afterward. And that led to the Nephilim and the Great Flood and all the rest of it. But the thing is, that the, it's there in the Bible that they're talking about the Watchers. Those people that we had here looking after us, I think, were the modern-day version of the Watchers. They were here to stop a war, and they did. They got rid of the missiles, they stopped the war, and they went home. And that means that somebody is looking after us. Story about the guy. What did the guy tell you about the ramming? He told you the story about they wanted to ram it over the, the silo when you talked to the guy. Well, about he it? said that they were they were told in briefing if they had the opportunity to ram a saucer and knock it down. He said we did have the opportunity, so we caught one over one of our missile sites, four of us in formation, and they were flying 104 Starfighters. Yeah. And uh, he said the saucer was coming straight up, and he said it was coming through the formation where I was. And he said, I wasn't going to die for that. So he says, I wheeled out of the way and let it go through the formation. <laughs> so there you are. But yeah, it, it's... Uh, um, there were so many of them going by the airport here. If you wanted to see a flying saucer, all you had to do was camp out here on that road and, and with a little patience, uh, you see one. There was, there was a guy came up from Winnipeg. He saw it on TV that we were having flying saucers out here. So. I had sold an airplane to a guy that was taking it across the mountains to British Columbia. And he wanted it to be a little quieter, so he he had a tall friend of his. This guy was about six foot four, and he was just a little guy. He was they were putting insulation in the firewall and and with bolts through. And the guy on the inside was drilling the holes and putting the bolts in. The other guy had his head jammed into the cowling. He was putting nuts on the bolts, right? And this guy came around the corner of the hangar here, came up and tapped him on the shoulder. And the guy wiggled himself out from under the cowling. He says, "Hey." He's, where are all these flying saucers that these guys are talking about? And he said, well, there goes one right now, right across the end of the runway. And the guy just stood there with his mouth open. He said, if he hadn't tapped me on the shoulder and I hadn't turned around, he said, I wouldn't have seen it either. They don't make any noise. So, there you have it. It's, uh, it's, uh, uh, and you've been a pilot all your life. How many years have you been a pilot? Since I was 17. That's a lot of years. Yeah, it cost me $300 to get my license that time, and the government paid me back $100. As this was after the war, they were trying to build the population up because they got caught short in World yeah. War II, right? And uh, back in those days, we were using lights for signals and not radios at the International Airport. That's going back a ways. And you've always had the airport since what time? Can you ask Bob to get his full name and where he and of course the permission. Oh yeah, yeah. Just for for the record, because they're going to put everything on tape rather than you uh, signing off. Can you just get permission to let them use the, your stuff and just give me your full name? Oh yeah, Robert Demert, Edward Demert, and uh, yeah, you can use uh, anything I tell you. Uh, it's a strange thing about that. You go downtown and ask the people that saw the flying saucers, and they won't talk to you. But I don't give a damn because uh, I talk freely about what I have seen. If people don't like it, that's their problem. There was lots of people. Did you talk to lots of people in Carmen at the time that were seeing stuff? Oh, yeah. The people across the river here, they, they had them, the flying saucers would fly right over their house when they jumped the trees. Oh, yeah. And and uh, the cops were driving around, chasing them with their cruisers. Yeah, they were everywhere. And and the, 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 the famous photographs were taken at the end of the road here by... Yeah, yeah. she Gita. set up the ambush behind her, her big front window. I, I saw the camera set up there. Yeah. I went over to get my picture taken for my passport, and I saw the camera set up. I said, what are you doing? Well, she says, I'm going to ambush Charlie. <laughs> she did. And she got the most famous photos. So she used to sit behind me yeah. in, the, in, the, in the station wagon. And we'd go up by the tower, and, and Charlie would come in, and she'd be photographing through the window, and then Charlie would go over the car. And she'd open the door and put the camera on the top of the car to get a picture of him. Never did. Yeah. As soon as she opened that door, they read him, they read her, and gone. And, and uh, they have some kind of a machine in their saucer, um, I don't think they do it themselves, but they can read the electromagnetic pulses in our brains. From, and the range, when there were nine of us, was exactly one mile. And if there's fewer people, they got to get closer. You had a lot of sighting parties, right? You had a bunch of you would go out at nights and try to view stuff. And yeah, I even took my little airplanes up at night and tried to stooge around waiting for them. But when I was on their radar, they wouldn't come near me. Wow. And, and Rob asked the question, like, what do you think brings them in? Because Rob has spent gone to 14 countries. He's got nine cameras set up. What brings them in is a missile bit, missile silos all along the border. That's what brings them in. 
That's why they were here. They were only here on this side of the border because they needed a place to sleep. Like one night we were up there and the saucer came in, did a circuit up to Carmen and it went back past us and went over the bushes. There's government land out there that's just all bush. And, and they flew along over the bush and then all of a sudden a beam came down. Now, not a light. This was a beam with distinct edges. And, and they landed on that beam in, down into the trees. And Barry Johnson, the uh, international dealer, was here on my runway uh, with his binoculars set up. And he saw it too. He, saw, he watched the same saucer land on the beam. You can see it from here. Wow. And, and, uh, but the, what I was going to tell you is I said 150 that I saw. I saw far more than that because I was seeing up to 50 a night. Wow. And, and they, would, uh, they would come in and they would land all over the valley. And like I say, I could see for 40 miles. And they were really glowing like diamonds out there. And there wasn't any question what they were because every once in a while one would pick up and go fly around, sometimes fly over us, and go and visit the neighbors. And I wonder why nobody was going out there to, to, to see what these things were. Well, you pointed out in your book, you can only see six miles from man height to man height. Yeah, and, and these things were a lot more than that apart. And, and uh, when you look out there, you say, oh, a farmer's working with his tractor or it's a yard light or something. You pay no attention to it, right? Yeah, yeah. But when you're up in the hills and you're overlooking the picture from above, then you can see what was going on. And, and uh, uh, on a poor night, there would maybe be 20, but on a good night, there'd be over 50 of them out there. So we had, a, we had a bunch of them. There wasn't any question about it. But you couldn't pay me to walk up to one of those things. You'd either get radiated to death or end up on the planet Fufu. <laughs> so, so your take would be that they're extraterrestrials, correct? Oh, yeah. There's no question. Now, um, uh, Ben Rich, the head of, of uh, um, the Skunk Works, which yeah. is you know, Lockheed Skunk Works, he said to a graduating class at ULCA, UCLA, that uh, at the end of his speech he said, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. Mm -hmm. And he also said, you can think of anything in your wildest imagination, anything at all. And he says, we have it out there in the desert. That's how far advanced they were already in Ben Rich's time. And, and uh, uh, he also said, he says, the aliens make flying saucers. And he said, we make flying saucers. <laughs> now, you know about the one that landed on the ice 100 miles north of Winnipeg? No, I didn't know. You don't know about that. Well, it's true. Um, if you want pictures of it, you go up to... Uh, I, I bought a truck in the at Pine Dock, which is the end of the road going up there. It's right at the Narrows on, on the lakes. Okay. And these guys are fishermen. And... Um, when we loaded the truck, we went and had coffee in a little coffee room there, and I said to, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to try them and ask them about this, if they know about this flying saucer. And as soon as I mentioned it, one of the lads jumped up and he went over and put his finger on the map and it landed right there, about 30 miles north of where we were, on the ice. And the old man spoke up and said, yeah, he says, I'm on the council, and he said, we were warned that there was going to be a Canadian contingent of the Army come through and do winter exercise, and he said, sure oh, enough, yeah. oh, yeah. 24... Snowmobiles and some track vehicles came through, and I think the flying saucer was up there playing with them when the elastic band broke and it crashed on the ice and slid into a snowbank. And, and I saw it on TV twice. First time was just the saucer. It looked exactly like two dinner plates put together. Yeah. Even with the curves were flat place to put it on the table, exactly like that. No windows, no antennas, no nothing. And it was sitting there with his nose stuck about 20 feet into a snowbank. And, and the next one was where an, an Indian was there with his snowmobile and he was standing in front taking a picture with his phone. So I had a size comparison. And the saucer was about 60 feet. And, and if you go up there and talk to them and talk to them real nice, they'll probably show you pictures of it. Yeah, yeah I remember now that you're mentioning it, yeah. And, and our guys, our noisy, nosy guys, that uh, went up there, the crash investigators, they decided they're going to go up and investigate this crash. And they got up there and there was American soldiers pointing guns at them. And they called Ottawa and said, what do we do about this? And Ottawa said, well, I'll let them take it. Let them have it. And a big yeah. uh, uh, chopper came in and picked it up and made off with it. But I don't think that was alien. I think that was American. Did anybody from the government ever come to talk to you or anybody that was kind of... Uh, well, they came to me in the first, when the flap first started. They were after me all the time to come and report to them what I saw. So that was who, RCMP or who? RCMP, yeah. Yeah. Now, I got a little story to tell you. Do you remember Boucher? 
Name is familiar. Yeah. He was he was in command of the Air Force Base in Winnipeg. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You told me. This Medicine Hat? The, you told me a story about Medicine Hat. Too, no, it wasn't Medicine Hat. It was... Uh, uh, Moose Jaw? Moose Shoes. And, and uh, anyway, there was a time when the Blue Max movie came out. Tickets to the premiere of the Blue Max. He said, "Come on in and have supper with my wife and I, and we'll go to the movie." Yeah. So I went in. And... Now, Boach was always pumping me about what's Charlie doing. <laughs> so we're in the middle of the meal. And he says to me, "What's Charlie doing out in Carmen?" I said, "Well, the usual thing in Carmen." But I said, "I, I have an ex-girlfriend that lives up in Prince Albert. And she was dating a cop from base of Moose Jaw and, and airport security." And at the separate table, he told them that the week before they'd been doing night flying, and there were five guys in the tower. When the airplanes were gone, they had nothing to do, so four guys were in the back playing pinochle, and then when the one guy at the glass, and all of a sudden he went berserk, and they came running up to the glass, and he was a flying saucer right outside. And he says, we're looking in at them, and they're looking back at us. He said, and we were using a red night light, he says, and, and they were using a green. And, and uh, he says, somebody went down to the ladder to get the CO out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, and he said that by the time CO got there, it was gone. Boats looked me in the eye and said, bullshit. <laughs> Why did you say that? He said, well, he says, I am the UFO officer from Western Canada. And he said, if that had happened, I'd be the first guy to know about it. I nearly fell off my chair. I didn't even know there was a UFO officer from Western Canada, never mind, it was my best friend in the airports. <laughs> so he, he said, I'll prove it to you. And he jumped up, and the phone was right there on the wall. And he dialed the Moose Juice Tower off his head. That really surprised me. He didn't look it up or anything. He just dialed the number. Got a hold of the duty officer. The duty officer's going, yabba, 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 do, because it's top secret. Yeah. And he said, look, he says, I am the UFO officer. He says, if you don't tell me what's going on, he says, you're in big trouble. So the guy had to spit up the story. And it was identical to what I told Boach. And Boach was just flabbergasted. And he said, well, how come? He said, that report didn't go through me. And the guy said, well, we were told. He said, it was so top secret. He said it had to go straight to Ottawa. And Boach was really all deflated. He sat down at the table and he leaned over in his chair. And I was sitting in the middle. And he leaned over and he looked me right in the eye and he said, Bob, he said, you know more about what's going on in this man's Air Force than I do. And he said, and I'm running it. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. And, but the, the, the big thing is that the government of Canada is known for a long time because uh, um, in. in um, uh, what do they call it? Shag Harbor? Oh, yeah. Remember back in 52 yeah. when that saucer got wounded and plumped in the bay and they yeah. thought it was an aircraft crash? And, and the Canadian Coast Guard and the American Coast Guard and a whole Navy bunch were there for a week diving on it. And then another saucer came and, and it was with it for a day or two and then they took off together. They went up the coast to a lighthouse and they had put a pinger on it so they knew where it was. And, and uh, it was there for another couple of days, and then the two of them took off together and left. Well, that was 1952. Yeah. And Smith was looking after things at that time. Yeah. He was, yeah. That was his specific job. So they knew all about what was going on back then. Yeah. Well, you had, yeah, you're able to talk about Irwin now? You had Irwin come oh, to Oh, yeah, to yeah. James yeah. Irwin, well, Apollo 15. Talk about James Irwin. Uh, he, um, he came to town to give a speech in the, in the local school. And the guy that was looking after him brought him out to the airport, and we were instant friends because we talked the same language, aviation. And uh, uh, he came out one day, and Elaine and I and he were standing in front of a, an airplane I just purchased. It was a beautiful little telegraph. The school bus rumbled by, and Elaine said, Oh, darn, i got to go to the house and let the kids in because the doors are locked. So she took off. And James, almost in the middle of a sentence, changed what he was saying to me. And he said, uh, What I'm going to tell you, he says, is top secret. If you ever repeat it, he says, I'll deny ever having said it. He said, when we landed on the moon, he said, we weren't there an hour, and a flying saucer landed a mile away from us. And, and uh, he said, I called Houston and asked them if we could they were, take the electric car. They were the first ones to have the electric yeah, car. Yeah. By the way, that's my electric car. He gave it to me. I haven't figured out how to go and get it yet. <laughs> he said, the battery's all charged up and everything. But anyway, so uh, Houston said, no, don't go near them. Just go about your business, because Houston didn't want them to get kidnapped. How would they explain that? Yeah. So anyway... I, I was telling this to, to one of the guys, my friends from Portage to Prairie, and he's in the coffee shop the next day talking to to uh, his boys there, and one of them spoke up and says, yeah, he says, I heard that conversation. You what? He says, yeah. He says, I was 
I was in the Canadian Army on peacekeeping duty on Cyprus, and he says, I was in my bunk twiddling my radio, and he says, I accidentally hit that frequency. It was what they call the, the uh, emergency health frequency. They had the medical frequency. And, and uh, he said the conversation was something like, who the hell are those guys? Where did they come from? What are they doing here? Yeah. And uh, Jim said when they left, the, the saucer was still there, and he said, we never saw anybody. And he told you a story about the, 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 the uh, that was confirmed later, actually a couple of years ago, it was confirmed, the thing about the straw. The straw in the helmet. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, uh, that's why he wasn't an astronaut anymore. Uh, they were out on a BVA, on the electric car, and they were out for eight hours, and they have a water bottle right here in their suit with a straw, and the straw slipped and he couldn't get any water out of the bottle. And he said it was tea time. Like 10 o'clock or time, and moon time. Uh, it was already 180 degrees. He said, Your suit is cool, but he said, Your face is not, your hands are not, and the bottom of your feet are not. And he said, They're burning. And he was out there for seven hours without any water. Yeah. And on the way back to, to Earth, he had a heart attack. Yeah. His potassium level went down so far. Yeah. And they had him wired and used to they knew what happened, but they wouldn't tell him. They just told him to go to his bunk and stay there. And they were hoping he'd be alive when he got down so they could look after him. So he had a full-blown heart attack for a day and a half uh, without any help. Yeah, I remember you telling me that story, and then I saw his wife wrote it up and confirmed the story you told me, and I went, oh, Bob told me that story years ago. He mm -hmm. confirmed that story. Mm -hmm. Well, he told me that. So that's why he wasn't an astronaut anymore, and, and uh, he had... A total of three heart attacks, the third one took him. Yeah. But he also, you know, he was up on Mount... Uh, yeah, he was in the Noah's Ark thing. On the Noah's Ark deal, yeah. He brought a piece of Noah's Ark into my hangar one day, on his shoulder. And it was about that long, it was about that, six inches square, and it looked like... Well, it was petrified wood. Yeah. And, and uh, I wanted to cut a piece off of it, and he wouldn't let me. He says, no, no, he's just going to the University of Massachusetts. the button there to turn it on if it, it blinks off. We call it the Cusco craft. It was not far from just the one button on the right touch. Do you see it? You know, I was looking at that last night. They filmed one of those in uh, Chile. Uh, one like this? Yep. Here that work? And it Let me get you on this one because that's my craft. It, it okay, was streaming ahead. some kind of a black trail for about oh, several miles. Uh, and they caught it from the helicopter on infrared, and it was 35 miles away, and uh, they, uh, they took the photo and they blew it up and everything else, and it looked like a peanut. It had uh, two very hot points in the, each end of it, 
and, and they don't know what the hell it is, whether they're nuclear reactors in there or what, but uh, yeah, they, they got pretty good pictures of one of those things. So what I just showed you, you've seen something like that before? I just looking at it last night, it was just on TV last night. Cool. They were showing Anything else you guys want to talk about? No, Bob, that's amazing. <laughs> I could, that's oh, I, one thing I was going to tell you about was that was, uh, uh, you maybe want to film this one. Um, He's going to get his camera going. I got my, ba my new battery. <laughs> you know who... One second here. Are you ready? Yeah. And I'm going to go like this. I'm going to go like that. And I'm going to go like that. And ready? Uh, like that. And go ahead, Bob. Alan Hynek, you remember him? Yes. The head yeah. Blue Book. Yeah. Came to Winnipeg to do a in 1975 to do a, a lecture at the University of Manitoba. So my wife and I decided we were going to go in and, and listen to this. Yeah. So in the in his first sentence, I gave my wife an elbow in the ribs. I said, Hey, he's never seen one. <laughs> I can tell in the first sentence. Yeah. So after the lecture, we went up to him and I said, I understand you've never seen a flying saucer. Oh, yeah, it's true. He said, well, would you like to? Oh, yeah, I'd really like to see one. Well, I said, well, that's good. I said, you come up with my wife and I to Carmen tonight. And he said, I'll show you half a dozen of them. And I'll bring you back in the morning. He wouldn't go. He wouldn't go. So that's when I realized he wasn't there to promote the flying saucers. He was there to debunk the flying saucers. You can get two copies of the, the CKY film. He went to the guy who shot the film. And he never gave copies. He said, I need two copies, not one. And he never responded what he thought of it or anything. Really? Yeah. That's surprising. But in the end, he said, they're real and he quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was pretty funny that he wouldn't come out to Carmen with us and actually look at the flying saucers. But like you pointed out in your book, when you run into a flying saucer, it's generally by accident, like I did the other night. But when you came out to Carmen to look for a flying saucer, it was no accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were here. Yeah, Anywhere you, all you had to do is, it's like you did the first four nights you were here. You came out four nights in a yep. row and, and, saw, and saw, saw four nights, saw yeah. Charlie three times. And pretty and close each time too. Yeah, it was. And and uh, it it was. I, uh, they were, well, the reason they were here is like I said, they were here to get away from the American Air Force. That's all. But in my opinion, now when I say they were the watchers, I've now other people are coming out. Yeah. In 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 the flying saucer realm and saying, yeah, they were the watchers. Yeah. So I'm not the only one saying that. How many people total do you think came out from Winnipeg? There's quite a, quite a few people. Oh, there. lots of them. A lot of those cars that were lined up long never from Winnipeg. Yeah. 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 And, and, and the very few of them went away disappointed. Yeah. But they're hard, very hard. We were lucky that night we got that CKY film because you know how hard it was to get a picture of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and uh, we were very fortunate to get the pictures that we got. Yeah, there was not that many photos, right? There no. Was the Charlie books, had was some the means of screwing it up. I don't know how they did it, but yeah. they, they had some means of screwing up. They yeah, knew we when they were photo. being we filmed because they can read you, and, and they screwed up the film somehow. Yeah. It's just like what they did down there with the with the missiles. Nobody knows how they did it. Yeah. But their technology is so far in advance of ours. Now, here's another thing that's my opinion only, that there are some, um, 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 what would you call them, um, Board types, you know what I mean? You the board were on Star Trek. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, there, I'm sure there are board types out there that would like nothing better than to come in here and destroy us. Mm -hmm. But they have to go through Charlie to get here. Oh yeah. Because Charlie and his crowd run this corner of the of the of the, uh, the galaxy. Now, why are they doing all these cattle mutilations and things? Well, that's a different story. Why did they take 32 yeah. uh, horses? Horses, yeah. Yeah. Well, what are they doing with all this stuff? Well, the only thing I can see, it's kind of far-fetched, but it's the only thing I can see is that they're making board, um, 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 uh, what do they call it, uh, half people, half animals. Oh, yeah, the hybrids. I, well, there's another name for it. But anyway, what they're doing is making these up with animal parts, and they're sending them out in various directions in the universe to see what the hell is out there, to see if there's any threats out there. Thousands of years to overfly it. Just our 
our Milky Way. And there's billions and billions and billions of, of uh, Milky Ways out there. Well, why do you think they're back now in 2020? Back there now? Yeah. Any ideas why they've suddenly... Because you had a sighting here, you had two. Seems like something's about to happen again. Something's going on, yeah. Uh, maybe it's time to start watching again. And he needs some looking after. Rob's got his cameras. He's going to set them up tonight. Where would you advise for a, a place to uh, site? Because he's got nine different cameras that all operate at the same time, sky watching. So where would you advise a good place around here to be sky watching? My father-in-law's yard in Miami. You see the whole valley. Okay. Is, okay. But is it still owned? Is, who's owning it? I have. Uh, well... I don't know who's living there right now, but yeah. they won't bother uh, if you go in there and introduce yourself. Gotta there. give my heads up. Yeah, okay. I can, I can text you. I'll have to give you a detailed great. map of how to get there. Yeah. Yeah, just to point, you know, this is where we Just to sort of walk around and point where things were seen. So while you're talking, I have really cool shots of you saying, I saw, you know, pointing. <laughs> it's what we call the pointing shots. <laughs> All you have to do is walk down to the road, and I can show you because that, that's where we saw most of them. That would be great, sir. Oh, if you're, if you're comfortable with that. I don't know if I can walk up this in there. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.